What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 13 of Modern Guilt. Unlucky 13, but that's cool. Um, we're really lucky to have a guest with us. So, hello, Ryan. How are you going? Hey, Hayden. Hey, Damon. Nice to see you both. Yeah, you too. So, Ryan Mena, would you describe yourself as a sociologist? Uh... Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess my pathway into academia or into research wasn't through sociology. So I don't always, um, I guess, um, have that connotation towards myself. But I guess if you saw the type of research I do and the things I do, um, you'd probably describe that as a sociologist. Um, You know, the more, uh, you know, illusory title might be (laughs) transdisciplinary researcher. Um, Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I suppose from here on out, uh, we don't really need to use a title because we've introduced you. <laughs> so um, that's that out of the way. Um, so you sent through a little bit of a bio that gives an overview of what you do, which I'm just going to sort of skim over for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we hit record, you sort of wanted to emphasize that when uh, we, I guess, talk about your role and the sort of work you do, you come at that from a position where you're not sort of up in this academic ivory tower. Um, so you try and use, I guess, maybe less traditional or less specific academic language and stuff when you're describing what you're doing. So I'm going to try and do that as well. Absolutely. Nice. And, and, <laughs> sorry, nice, nice, nice. I know you're about to introduce me, Hayden, but I guess another factor of that is, and it comes with, I guess, that, you know, sort of connotation of do you call yourself a sociologist, is that we often, um, you know, we're coupled with a personification of an occupation or a position in society. Mm. And, you know, rather than being a person who researches in sociology or a person who engages in sociology, you become a sociologist. And I think that coupling of people and how people in a position is problematic. So... That's just sort of another thread there. Yeah, I, I actually somewhat agree with that. So thanks for pointing that out. So basically to summarise, you carry out research at the moment in terms of um, ways to frame expertise and the position that expertise plays in society and how, I suppose, top-down approaches um, as it relates to, I guess, government and institutions engaging communities and stakeholders comes about. Um, so you lead the operational and strategic program of the EDOS Institute hosted at the QUT. IDOS. Would you like to explain what you guys do there? Absolutely. Yeah, so IDOS is a funny little entity. Um, so IDOS is a, is a research institute, so it's an approved research institute, and it's operated in Queensland, um, you know, well, that's where it's based since 2004. And there was a bit of time before that where it operated much more as, I guess, an association or a network. And IDOS really sits at that interface between research and public policy mm-hmm. um, and very actively thinks of ways in which we might, um, I guess, tran- turn ideas into action for sort of, you know, if you're going to turn it into a phrase. Yeah. Um, and I'd actually done some work with IDOS before I started at QUT and then I um, came back 
I'd studied at QUT, went and did some work with IDOS and a few other little bits and pieces in the public policy realm. And then I came back to QUT to do my master's and along the way um, an opportunity came up um, which was sort of a QUT IDOS joint project. Um, and what they were looking at was um, IDOS had just come out of a period of trading as another entity for five years. So it was a non-profit organisation and it had a sort of separate brand that it traded as for five years, which was mm-hmm. called MindHive. And MindHive is a platform in which, um, you know, government put up public policy problems or, you know, uh, you know institutions, organisations put up these strategic public policy problems and then um, people come on, experts come on to um, solve those problems. Right. And so obviously sits within what IDOS's sort of philosophy was and the idea was that, you know, the, that, you know, as opposed to going to the, you know, the um, political scientists for these political problems, there's obviously others that you can go to and this would be a way in which you could expedite that process. So IDOS had just been doing that for about five years and then it, um, they used the term spun off Mindhive and Mindhive became a separate legal entity and became a, um, actually a for-profit entity, um, which was important because it was a platform. So it needed to have um, that commercial aspect so that it could raise money and, and pay for its platform, which is, you know, expensive uh, mechanism. And so IDOS was sort of a shell of an organisation at that point. But, and there was a decision they were making about whether to sort of wind it up or whether to continue on. And uh, this is sort of around 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's sort of this we're well and truly in the Trump era. And I guess in Australia at the time we had leadership, you know, that sort of this leadership disruption um, in the federal government. And I guess there's that sort of there was a lot of that trust deficit sort of language going on. Um, and so there was there was, a, I guess, a group of people that really did want to see IDOS continue. And so the, the project initially was around well, putting someone in a role that was familiar with the organisation that could explore what this organisation could do next. And so, yeah, so that's what my role has been. And we've just been looking at, I guess, different opportunities to sort of support the work that QT and other higher education institutes do mm-hmm. um, and, you know, engage with um, Queensland government. And so sort of some of our core strengths really are around just our, that IDOS as a brand is just known by a lot of people in the public service and is a trusted brand. And it's also um, a very, it's always seen as this neutral ground. So rather than being sort of, um, you know, it's a, it's not a genderless, you know, it doesn't have a, it still has a, um, this philosophical drive to, to sort of make better public policy, but it doesn't seek to be the person on the front page, you know, holding up the trophy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really important in academia and in public policy and in government because there's ideas are so contestable and ideas are often politicised um, and often turned into sort of devices of, well, I can't do that because, you know, the other party did that. So IDOS tries to sit in that space um, and do things a bit differently. So Does that mean you have to stay out of some things? Like everything's so heavily politicised now, I feel, that that must keep you out of some discussions or is it generally that you're engaging in 
Well, it's interesting. Like generally we sort of, um, we bring the discussions together. So um, a lot of our sort of, yeah, the way in which we engage with things is sort of like we construct those conversations um, and we do them usually in part, like we do it in partnership. And I guess we just are very upfront and honest that this is about being a neutral space. This is about, you know, um, an issue rather than a sort of um, overarching ideological or, um, strategic objective of an organisation or an institute or a government, and um, and what we want to do is talk about yeah the issue um, in play. I mean, it sort of um, it, we definitely have to sort of talk very actively and talk. We can't, you know, you find yourself in conversations where yeah you could be could be construed as you said, um, Damon, that you know this is a political issue, and so you mm-hmm. do have to navigate that. It can be sort of choppy waters. But um, but it's sort of I think there's a role for us to depoliticize those things and to also and this comes back to sort of what we talked about in the introduction, Hayden, is that decoupling. So that you know decoupling of the idea and the 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 sort of policy or the um, thing that's for the public interest and ideology, right? So you know we can't just be driven by um, this idea that well I'm a neoliberal or I'm a capitalist or I'm you know you know, communist or, you know, I'm a Labour Party member or a Liberal Party member, so I can't do this. It's sort of, you know, you really degrade yourself in a lot of ways by... Um, That must be really hard. Yeah, obviously, (laughs) depoliticising issues is a massive challenge and Mm. almost everybody who you encounter seems to want to make things political. So, quite frankly, how successful do you think you guys are at that? I mean, it's it's interesting. I've never had the conversation quite in this way because I guess a lot of the time I'm having a very active conversation with, you know, a person about a, their specific issue. Mm-hmm. And I think really, I mean, what I try to do is, uh, and really we operate more in the public policy realm than the political realm. Yeah. And so I guess as a public servant, you have this public interest, this broader sort of northern light which is this idea that you do things in the public interest, right, and that your job is about that. Um, That's a really important component of government and that sort of arm's length dealing with um, the political powers or, you Mm. know, the legislators. And then, you know, the other end of the people that we usually deal with is academics, right, and academics are actually quite, um, I guess, like they don't, they don't even really believe that they work for the university, right? The university is just somewhere that is privileged to have their expertise and their, you know, them doing things and affiliating with them. So on the academic side, you know, you've got no trouble. Academics will speak their mind and will, you know, often um, not really delve into the identity of of who they are, what they're talking about. And then what I do, what I would do with the public servants is really just talk about that broader public interest. And so it's always about bringing it back up to the next level. Um, in in the specific activities we do, um, I think we've had a great, a good degree of success and been quite happy with, yeah, how we've navigated it. And I guess, you know, just a testament to that is that as a separate entity with a separate brand and a separate sort of reputation we've survived in an institutional environment which is a university and been able to bring together you know I mean a lot of people in government and in academia will say you know best way to find out what QUT is doing or what the institution's doing is to go to a meeting with someone else from outside and they'll tell you what's happening right that's how disparate information is and how you know little you know about what your colleagues are doing and so 
just our success in bringing together those small pockets of areas we work in, yeah, has been sort of the, I guess, the, yeah, where we've seen our progress. So. Yeah, cool. I've got, I guess, a couple of questions, but the first mm. one, and I hope maybe this is the easier of the two to answer. Um, how do you guys go about defining the public interest? Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it varies from issue to issue, but would you maybe be able to describe or explain one sort of puzzle um, or public policy issue that you guys have had to deal with and how you define the public interest? Mm. Well, I think there's often a, a view that the public interest is somehow static, that it's mm-hmm. somehow that, that the interest is identifiable from the outset and that somehow you will have, you know, well, this is in the public interest, so you'll just continue sailing the ship and doing it that way, when really it's much more dynamic and there's, I guess, many levers and many factors that contribute to it. Um, and so you can't simply just say, well, where, you know, this is in the public interest, this one thing, right? You have to really take a step back and look at, well, what's that principle behind what we're doing? What's the values behind what we're doing? And, and you know, if it's to, um, like, what's a good example? You know, if, if you look at, you know, employment outcomes for people, right? So trying to get long-term unemployed people um, into a job, you know, the public interest in that is, you know, is actually very much vested in that individual. It's not something that... So there's sort of these, you know, competing interests of, you know, well, we want to get people off the dole or people are lazy and people do all these things. And some people might construct the public interest around that, right, that the public, the true public interest is um, to decrease government expenditure, right? And then the other, um, you know, then the other argument is that, you know, people need, the, you know, a strong set uh, welfare net and that they need to, um, you know, have access to resources, access to, fin- you know, financial capital and that, it, you know, the idea that your you are the sum total of your employment is the, you know, is all you're worth um, or the only reason we should support you is, you know, is wrong, right? And so if you think about those two arguments, one is very much about public expenditure and about reducing it and then the other is about keeping it and keeping it for this sort of to support that individual. If you, if you you could really convey and advocate for a program that fits both of those models, right, where you could talk about, well, what's the, you know, what's the efficiency of what we're doing, not in a, a sort of neoclassical way of sort of efficiency in terms of levers, but where is that, how does that individual derive value and how can we support that individual and in what they're doing? And you centre the public interest in that way around that individual and you say, well, what's, what are the things that are going to get this person to live a rich and fulfilling life? What are we going to do to, you know, rather than looking at the expenditure in this microscopic way of like, well, we're giving them $750 a week or a fortnight, you know, what are the broader social and economic costs of this person being long-term unemployed? Mm. And so I guess really constructing it from that individual outwardly rather than constructing it um, and basing it from an idea. So that's quite interesting. I, I guess a lot of it comes back into like, what's the point of doing yeah. anything? Um, you know, and what does someone want to achieve and what is a good life? And if you want to construct any policy around it, I feel like there always has to be this sort of um, imposition of what constitutes a good life, you know, and like, oh, well, it must be made up of, you know, employment and it can't be, you know, it's not necessarily any employment. It has to be, um, something considered more virtuous by someone else. 
Mm. And, and sort of this idea that somehow you could go through a checklist and somehow you're employed, married, you know, got savings and somehow those things will just hold constant then for the rest of your life, right? Yeah. And one thing we see at the moment is that, you know, those things that hold constant aren't holding constant, right? Do, do you think there would ever be a time that that might change? Because I've often wondered about this, if, um, especially when I think about the future that someone like my niece might experience uh, where, you know, maybe there's this total disappearing of jobs and that what's virtuous might take on like another form, you know, like, oh, she has uh, 10,000 followers on some social media platform. Good for her. You have fantastic, you know, like that's a sign of, um, of, you know, some sort of social clout or something like that, Mm -hmm. that maybe will trickle upwards to what is desirable. If employment starts to be something that is less uh, desirable in the long run, Mm. Yeah, it is interesting. Isn't it? I mean, I think that one thing I'm, um, you know, like there's nothing as sure as change, right? Like, you know, that is the only constant and, I, and I'm a big believer of that. And I think that one thing that we, that we all need to be very conscious of is that we need to be very critical and active participants in society and that those things won't, sim- things won't simply change for the better. Like, you know, like if we let it take its course, then some people will construct the better and the better will benefit them, right? Mm. And it's important that we all take active steps in participating in that. And I think, yeah, like, you know, even you've seen this sort of people go, oh, you know, this is, you know, we won't go back. There'll be a new normal. We won't go back to the old normal. But I've seen in, in, and this is, you know, just personally, I've seen it just a revert straight back to the old archaic ways of doing things just and I've been really surprised I was always cynical but I was really surprised how quickly we've come back to that and it's almost ingrained or strengthened by um COVID. So is that like people doubling down like like when you say returning back to like how it used to be like do you have an example of of that? Just, you know, like the sort of um, this idea that we will, you know, that um, people will be valued more for, you know, different things, that that somehow they are, you know, not just numbers on a spreadsheet, right, to an organisation. And I just know from the conversations I've had and the things I've seen that, you know, that's clearly not happening, right, and that and this idea that somehow, um, you know, our broader systems and structures that, you know, um, sit around businesses. Somehow, businesses will be more socially responsible now, and, oh. and you know, like it's yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this idea that you can just sort of, um, yeah, like that just the way that businesses have operated is just. I just don't think it's been. They haven't risen to their ability to this sort of philosophical, aspirational platform that's been put in front of them that they can do things better. You know, we've seen Qantas in Australia just sack you know, 6,000 workers. Yeah. Um, you know, so. Yeah, we've had similar stories in New Zealand. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, that's cool. something that I've been pretty consistently frustrated about in terms of the dominant media framing of COVID as a crisis and only a crisis um, mm. because it sounds like a bit of a cliche and maybe like an overly optimistic way to view it, but it's also one of the largest opportunities we've had to revolutionize society since maybe the internet. Mm. Um, And I feel as though these opportunities 
are not things that you can easily just generate or invent as a society. Like when we, when the um, internet or the technology revolution came along, I don't think that's something that was planned. It kind of, we made it and then it happened and then we figured out what to do with it. Um, And in the same way, this sort of opportunity we have now has fallen into our laps, but I don't think many people realize, or if they do, like you say, Ryan, we're not coming together and thinking about the processes and structures that we have the opportunity to change right now. Mm. Existing um, institutions probably aren't going to do much there, right? And I think, you know, one thing we know about, because um, I've done a bit of research around volunteering, right, and, you know, a big factor for people volunteering will be when there's a disaster, right, mm. or, you know, any sort of giving, right, there'll be some sort of shock, some sort of event that will cause people to um, volunteer, right? And, and often when people volunteer, they sort of, they do volunteer or they don't. There's not many people that sort of, come in and out of it anyone that's done more than 20 hours of volunteering pretty much keeps doing it right it's not as it's not actually as um episodic or as interchangeable as you might think people are right. consistent um and also one thing that you know we sort of found in our study was that negative life events actually um in actually cause you to volunteer more right mm-hmm. so so this idea that you might feel unsafe um, you know, in your community or this idea that you, someone, you know, a relative has died. These things cause you to volunteer. They cause you to volunteer in community groups and support groups, right? They cause you to volunteer in, you know, cancer fundraising and, and these sorts of things as well because you've, had a rel- you've lost a relative that way. And so we actually know that people, like negative life events actually have, like there's positives from that, right? And there's things that people do and um, actions they take after that. And, you know, we've all just had this negative life event and, you know, I, I don't want to um, throw my research out the door, but, like, I don't see anyone bettering their lives, really. And it's interesting, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. <laughs> and that makes me wonder, and I'm obviously not familiar with the details of the study or <laughs> any of research in this area, actually, but it makes me wonder if, A, there are certain people who experience those events and respond in one way, whereas the majority don't. And B, maybe if the negative event is sustained and as consistent or as constant as COVID, that it kind of almost breaks your spirit. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, I just add there, Hayden, that it's sort of um, like you're right. There's this, there's, I I think there's this element of sort of, there's got to be this mix of sort of personal and community-based, you know, like, um, I don't know if it's trauma or negative, you know, to the event. So if you Mm -hmm. think about um, someone, you know, if you have a relative that dies of cancer, it's a very personal experience, but you can relate it to this broader experience, right? If you, um, if you, yeah, you know, all of these sorts of things you can relate out, you know, and you can find that, you know, there's a, a need to search for community, and perhaps COVID has been a different sort of event or disaster. And I think the prolongedness is also, yeah, would give people that element of fatigue. Another thing I'd add is just it's it's once in a lifetime event, right? It's not like it's it's not like other um, you know life events. And I think it needs to be you know you sort of hear all of this. And that was sort of the thing is you hear all of this like, oh, you know, we're all supporting each other and, like, there's all this, you know, we're in it together and all of these people doing this work from home, saying they love working from home. But 
you know, we really need to acknowledge that everything that happened during COVID was a very unique experience. And it's yeah. not like those those things that we did, that sort of community output or the sort of working from home, those experiences will be different moving forward. Um, well, and, yeah. Some of that's kind of like really privileged as well, right? Like I, I feel like people experience the entire thing subject like it, the division feels bigger to me because on the one hand you, you have people that actually have the privilege of being able to work from home and then you have people that can't work from home and you know they're sort of like forced to be on you know i guess the the front lines of um, of the pandemic and have to serve people and everything like that and i feel like there's more resentment coming out you know i don't know if that's part of what kicked everything off in the states and you know the sort of uncovered a lot of the civil unrest, but it definitely feels like it's more of a dividing factor, especially because it's not like a, people don't view it universally. Like um, me and Hayden went through earthquakes, which was kind of like a, you felt it. And it was, there, there wasn't really a bind, you know, an event with much interpretation other than it was like a really big earthquake uh, that shook everything. Whereas this, you have people who are like, oh, it's just like a little cold or whatever. And then the other side, which is like, no, it's, you know, it's horrible, nasty COVID. Yeah, and that's it, a really nice perspective. I really like that, yeah. that idea, right, that that a natural event or these sorts of usual crises or events, you know, mm. sort of, whilst we experience them differently, there's, especially if there's a physicality to it, there's that element. And, and you know, we all, you know, we all sort of, um, you know, we all experience an earthquake in a relatively similar way, right? It's a, it's a sort of, um, yeah, tectonic disruption mm. to the ground that we're standing on. Um, yeah. You can, have a, you can have a view about COVID and, and I think that's very interesting, isn't it? It's unfortunate. Um, yeah. um, that, and I guess that's part of where you get multiple experts weighing in as well and you have some people like, uh, I can't remember his name, I think it was like Alandis or something, you're releasing a paper effectively sort of, not like entirely dismissing it, but, you know, largely saying like, oh, bad flu season and this is mm. causing more damage to the economy, which is, you know, each drop in GDP causes X suicides, which is, you know, as terrible, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then other people, you know, weighing in on it. And it's becoming fragmented to the point that it's politicized. Mm. And it's like, well, you're either in the camp of like taking it seriously or you're in the camp of dismissing it. Mm. Exactly. Um, and I was just going to add as well when when you had mentioned, sorry to interrupt, Hayden. But, that's uh, okay. That you sort of talked about, yeah, that that people, you know, there was sort of this class division, I guess, within COVID and that, you know, some people had, I guess, that, yeah, privilege of working from home. And, and I think, you know, further to that, right, there's also those elements of just, you know, like putting, you know, telling people they have to stay at home and, you know, they might live with an abusive partner, they might live with abusive, you know, abusive parents, they might, mm. you know, I mean, I live in a home, I live in a, t- a townhouse that has multiple levels, you know, which makes a huge difference, right? I just live with one other person. Um, mm. Whereas, you know, some people, even in the space that I live in, there would be four, maybe five people living in that space easily. You know, people had um, their kids working from home, they were working from home. And, and you know, one thing we saw really unfortunately, because I do a bit of work in early childhood care and education, is you see this gendered response where, you know, that women working from home were, you know, more and more having to take on those responsibilities of providing that education and that care for their children. 
um, because that's just the way that our society is constructed. And yeah. Yeah, just think it's there's there's huge impacts for people that are fundamentally different. Um, you know, and I was incredibly privileged. My experience was, you know, I mean, all all I lost was a, you know, I guess a bit of free time, right? A bit of sort of mm. what I would usually do, um, which I shouldn't discount, right? It's important to have those usual outlets, but it was also some people's experience will you'll see the, you know, they were traumatic. It, it, it literally say, and people in Melbourne right now you know, in this, you know, I guess from our Australian context, like their experience is fundamentally different to the experience in Queensland or anywhere else in the country. Mm. Um, I think this might be a good opportunity to segue into a discussion of the subject matter of one of the articles that you shared with us, Ryan. Mm -hmm. And I'll just briefly, I suppose, summarise it for the sake of the listeners Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe offer um, an interpretation of it that I got on my end. And um, I might sort of get you to um, summarise the, the problematique present in this paper, I suppose, in response or in the context of uh, the COVID outbreak, because I think there are a lot of interesting parallels. So the paper that I'm talking about uh, is the one titled Turning Expertise, sorry, Turning Experience into Expertise, Technologies of the Self in Finnish Participatory participatory Social Policy. I am tongue-tied at the moment. Um, So this paper provides an overview of, I I suppose, a top-down attempt at improving the efficiency of governance um, in the delivery of social services by enlisting um, welfare recipients or people who have sources of knowledge and professionalism in that their experience uh, should ideally provide feedback into expertise which should inform the way that these social services are delivered uh, and ideally improve outcomes for people going forward. And in the paper, they describe the way that... um, Although these organisations and institutions or um, arms of government, I guess you could say, uh, offered people a platform and an opportunity to describe their experiences and the sort of reality of it that they, um, that they draw from their situation, they're asked to do so in a way that I suppose conforms to pre-existing categorizations um, of the welfare experience. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how that similar dynamic in terms of uh, people who are experiencing trauma and um, communities uh, struggling to make themselves maybe heard in contrast to profession or top-down approaches of like dealing with a disaster. I know one, this paper is an example of it at a micro scale and we're talking about COVID, which is obviously like a ultra macro issue. But yeah, do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Um, a little bit. Like, I guess, do you want to just put, like, I, I, all the context is really great, but do you want to just put the critical question forward again? Yeah, yeah. So how do you see, I guess, dominant uh, understanding of, like, knowledge and expertise and professionalism um, interacting with the way that people are experiencing COVID? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it's interesting, right? So that, you know, paper in particular, right, it, it, one thing they really touched on was that, 
you know, government and increase. And then I think I shared another one, Hayden, that with you um, like a few weeks ago as well, which was about, you know, defining communities, right, and how community engagement is defined and, and this sort of construct of community. And I think a real, there's this real um, sort of pressure that exists to somehow define who you're talking to and define them in a particular way and tell, whilst you want them to tell you what to do, you're positioning them in a way in which, like there's only one or two ways that they can tell it to you or, or give it to you, you know, um, share that experience with you. So I think that, you know, there's just a huge risk in in putting time and effort in engaging sort of experts or engaging people um, on their experience if you're only going to look at it in a very sort of one-dimensional aspect, right? And if you're only going to, if you're not going to be truly open to the sort of confrontation or the... Um, rawness of what they're sharing then you sort of you know you're really devoiding yourself of that opportunity and really wasting everyone's time right because time is precious and you want to make sure that if you're going to if you're going to go to the effort of speaking to someone and they're going to go to the effort of speaking to you like do you know what I mean like you want to you want that experience to be as enriching as possible mm-hmm. and I think one thing that that paper really highlighted for me was this there's just this concept and this whole element that exists around subjectivity and objectivity and this idea that somehow people if they draw on the personal they're somehow being subjective um and that somehow you know the only way in which you can share a perspective is by being objective and and really that's sort of what we were talking about before we started the podcast was this idea that people feel the need to say something in a definitive way right they need they feel the need to say oh well it's, this is what's going to happen and somehow that that's like the more sort of like objective response right when it's actually very subjective and that the response of just being much more raw about how you're experiencing something is probably you know a much more dynamic response in which we can draw on and I think the idea that you know somehow by saying I'm not sure what the answer is to that question you're somehow um you're somehow not giving a response or you're not you know, like saying I don't understand the question is sometimes the most fundamental thing to say because it means that the communication isn't open and isn't happening. So That's mm. something that really resonates with me and I think is really relevant to what we were talking about in terms of people saying this is going to be the new normal or mm. um, coming out of lockdown being an opportunity to, to rework the way that we do things. Um, in that like when there's that sort of dialogue that's often between institutions or large companies and communities or individuals sort of you know the top down to bottom up um, I guess interaction um, I think often the the choices or the the ways of talking about things that are put down on the table are so limited Um, and because the options are controlled by by institutions or professionals um people who might not know as much about the issue or people who are experiencing something subjectively i think are made to feel as though like you say their their input isn't as valuable so i think when communities or or people are coming out of covid and they're saying things like you know we want things to be different from here on in but they might not necessarily know how I think that is really important. They're saying like, you know, I don't know the answer, but like what we had isn't it. Mm. Um, but that's not seen as um, 
enough of a statement. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons that we're seeing things slide back to normality. Absolutely. Um, which, like, you know, I find pretty devastating, really. Is it normality? It seems like a more dystopian version of normality than than what was uh, whatever was going on before. Like, you know, well, I, I don't know, because I, I speak from a weird perspective of being, like, largely locked in the room that you see me in. Yeah. Um, you know, and I like didn't really participate much um, before this anyway. So from the outside, it just so, kind of looks like yeah. My I guess perspective of things going back to normal um, comes from looking around and looking at stuff like government policy towards climate change and welfare, for example. Which yeah, um, we've isn't getting any more progressive, despite the fact that we've seen the importance of a safety net um and the fact that we've seen our current system not quite collapse but fall into like a devastating economic recession and we've seen that the way that we're doing things isn't as as well oiled as we we think it is um yeah but we seem to be reverting straight back to that as that's what i mean oh okay i saw like it was reported somewhere that australians were getting paid a thousand dollars each or something like that which is, sounds like it was a bad report. Um, I think it was, to be honest, when I say either it's something that I saw reported, I'm pretty sure it was something that I saw someone complaining on Twitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the definitive news source now. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and that was in response to the fact that Americans were getting like their one-time $1,200 check or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think there there definitely were stimulus stimulus payments that went out to Australians um, in one capacity or another. I didn't receive one because I'm not an Australian citizen. Um, oh, yeah. But I still think that's a really sort of insignificant example in the long run of things changing. Yeah. Mm. And, and I think, you know... Um, from my perspective, there's just a greater polarisation, right? And and that people, you know, and, and I don't, um, you know, sort of um, expel myself from, you know, being a, a privileged person, right? Uh, you know, I live in a nice inner city suburb. I have, you know, green trees around me. You know, I have a stable income, relatively stable income. I go to a cafe every day. You know, I can buy coffee, I can buy food, I can do all of these things, right? And lots of people can't do that. And I think lots of people, um, you know, are being judged for doing things. And But I still see the same, you know, affluent people hugging and kissing each other and doing all of these things that are probably much more likely to get you contracted of COVID than, you know, moving around states right and crossing borders to see a you know sick relative right or to to visit a family member and so you just see you know i guess these elements of you know um you know well people are being so reckless or they did this and young people do all of these things and this and that and no real acknowledgement that if you're going to get coronavirus it's pretty much assured that you're going to get it from someone you know right um Mm -hmm. you're not just going to get it from the table at the restaurant right that's Mm -hmm. not how you're going to get it um yeah i know in the united states the household is the number one vector of transmission um Mm -hmm. so you're right about that to avoid more covid talk um do you have any uh projects that you're working on in terms of research or public policy at the moment ryan that you think are of particular interest or importance that you'd like to share with us um look not not particularly. There, there was one that I had fought to talk about, but it's sort of like, yeah, there's elements of it that I probably shouldn't. And one of them is uh, 
contractual as in we're currently just negotiating. Sure. So I don't probably don't want to jump into that one and hope that it would be negotiated by now. But I guess, um, you know, I can speak more just generally to my research interests and the intersects that has with the applied research I do. I don't know. That yeah, helps? I mean, let's get into it. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I'm just immensely interested by the concept of expertise and by this concept that somehow um, people, because of letters after their, before, after their name, or because of sort of this ordained, you know, authoritative nature in which we decide that someone is now an expert that, and, and, you know, this is, and it was interesting because if you, some of those articles do touch on this, this isn't sort of an anti-intellectualism sort of debate, right? But it's just this idea that we hold this level of these elements of expertise in just this sort of different light. And it's all sort of wrapped around this element of objectivity, right? And that somehow this knowledge is more objective than other knowledge. And um, and what we see is that the, the knowledge that we often apply in everything we do, which is that tacit knowledge or that knowledge that we have from our experiences, um, is somehow dilute, you know, sort of diluted in terms of its importance, sort of in um, in getting a job or getting sort of, you know, I guess moving through society, you know, moving through education. And, you know, I guess I use, you know, just the example of, you know, you for, you know, I can, I've got the right qualification to do good research, right? But often what gets us the work is because I have a customer service orientation towards what I do. And I talk to people and I'm able to to advocate and, and I guess, you know, for lack of a better word, sell our, our research, right? But but no one would ever hire me if I listed my ten years. You know, no one. Everyone would sort of screw up their nose if they if I spoke at length about how my experience in hospitality is why I can I'm really good at customer service. Right? That would just somehow be seen as so irrelevant to my research role. And why would I even bother putting that on my CV, let alone in my cover letter? Mm-hmm. When actually it is really valuable. And I just think this sort of idea of um, I guess the class the way in which we construct expertise around class. And also there's just that broader element of a lot of people don't have access to education or to employment that allow them to, you know, get that right experience, you know. And I think that, you know, we just do ourselves a huge disservice because we lock out a whole bunch of people who can make really valuable contributions because we construct um, the value of certain experiences over others rather than, how people draw from their experiences, right? That's, yeah. Yeah, that's really funny when you say that because um, one of the things that when, when I was finishing up my honours, mm. um, my entire graduating class had always sort of operated under this assumption that, you know, the number one thing that's going to get them a job is their grades. And it's like if they get good grades, then it's, then it's all smooth sailing and, and you get to waltz into this, you know, sort of like perfect life from here on out. And, and everything as well was sort of like about, oh, that guy's got a PhD, you know, like he he's, must be incredibly intelligent, blah, blah, blah. And it was like so ingrained in the way that people conducted themselves within, you know, my cohort and basically everyone else's cohort. And I was told from a young age that people hire people that they want to have a beer with. So I've always thought about it like a little bit differently, you know, like you're ultimately in the workplace, people are just want someone that they can get on with. Um, Mm. And I think a lot of them were caught off guard when they started seeing like, that's more the way it works. And there's, you know, life isn't this big meritocracy. 
um, despite the fact that it's sort of instilled in you from an early age that it's like, you know, you get good grades, you can get to a, you know, good, you know, high school or you can get from there to a good university and then from there you can get to a good uh, job and it all relies on this, you know, sort of like institutionally verified, checkmarked uh, knowledge when in fact it feels like, to me, I think it seems that there's much more to it. Like, you know, that it's being able to talk to people and to convey mm. ideas. And it's like sales, like you were saying, seems to be mm. like the most important thing. And it's not taught at all. No, exactly. Know? It's not taught. And it's not necessarily something that, you know, I guess, you know, universities can teach, right? But I think mm. what is really important is universities can't dilute the value of it, right? And that we shouldn't dilute the value of it. It's like, like you said, it's sort of, it's like what your parents might tell you or like, it's like this sort of the secret, right? You're sort of told like, yeah. oh, you know, like make sure you, you know, you're really personable, right? And it's, I guess this, um, you know, it's this, I, you know, a lot of people don't even get to the step, right, of the job interview, because they just, you still need those, I guess, really um, sort of transactional um, elements that are quantifiable to get you in the door, you know? Mm. And you hear students talk about their degrees that way, right? It's just to get me in the door, right? And and I guess that's the thing that I touch on is just this, we even know, right, to do the job and to do it well, you don't even need to draw on those more technical skills. It's the more of, I guess, those softer skills. And so, um, but, but if we keep limiting people's access to that, you'll keep seeing, um, you know, rich white men in good jobs and you will increasingly see um, more and more people marginalised. And, you know, if we even think about, you know, I was thinking before I went on this podcast, 200 years ago, right, there were, there was, a, jobs were very technical, right? They were, and, you know, even 50 years ago, there was a technicality to jobs that was so important, right? And increasingly we're seeing jobs become more, um, I guess, um, dynamic and more about those tacit skills, but we're not really, I think at the same time, experiencing a shift in how we acknowledge what, you know, people's abilities um, beyond the piece of paper that they hold um, and they we're still requiring them to have those pieces of paper when they can probably do it without it. I, I agree with you and I, I also simultaneously disagree with you on that because I, I feel like like jobs, there's some jobs that are like really technical now um, and others uh, that I've like personally held that are, you know, especially within like, um, you know, the yuppie ecosystem post degree <laughs> life where you end up, you know, in some corporate um, factory somewhere mm. that are, they're, they're kind of just like glorified button pushing, you know, or like mm. moving numbers around on an Excel spreadsheet that definitely did not require uh, three, four, five years of study. Mm. Um, but that's the, you know, it's there's a gatekeeping in front of it because I guess like otherwise they might be overwhelmed by, um, you know, sheer number of applications and there has to be some sort of filtering mechanism. Mm. But I, I feel like there's there's got to be like a, a whole swath of positions currently that don't need a degree at all. And in fact, probably would benefit from having someone sort of just like, you know, have some on-the-job training um or something like that as opposed to needing to go through this entire um you know three four year five year whatever degree program well i think um damon what you're 
what you're getting at reminds me of a podcast that you actually shared with me. Uh, it was one of the econ talk episodes about mm. um, higher education outcomes. And um, this isn't a field that I'm super familiar with, but according to this podcast, there are, there's a sort of like an ongoing debate amongst labor economists about uh, whether or not it's the what they call the human capital model or the signaling model, which determines um, outcomes for university graduates. Like mm. the human capital model says that university graduates on average uh, attain higher paying jobs and more, I guess, prestige in society because of the skills and training that they receive during study. And the signaling models predicts that they get those same benefits just because the degree signals that they have jumped through the hoops, ticked the boxes, um, and have essentially demonstrated their ability to uh, conform and be molded. Yeah, so like, they're not building actual skills. Mm, they're just, yeah. you know. And I like, obviously there are degrees like engineering, for example, and I suppose computer science, and I'm just pulling these out of thin air. I'm sure there are plenty of others as well. Like, I mean, medicine and nursing would be a great example where you, you clearly need a skill set that you can most likely only learn through university or years of study on your own accord. Um, but I still think that for the most part, the signaling model is probably most accurate. And those sort of like middling... <laughs> quote yuppie jobs that you were just talking about which is just moving numbers around on a spreadsheet i think like those are a perfect example of positions where they they don't want you to be that skilled and i don't mm. think they want you to think critically either you know they want the signaling model um tells them that you're perfect for it because you can just be like slotted neatly into a box and then that's what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. um, and that sounds like some, some sixties, like anti-establishment shit, like conspiratorial nut job talk, but I think it's hitting the nail on the head. Uh, Ryan, sorry, you were about to say something. I was just going to say, you know, I've sort of, um, you know, I've, my master's was in economics research and, and I guess I have a sort of, um, reformed view on on economic theory and i guess it's sort of simplistic approach to you know what i view as simplistic um, approaches to sort of constructing things so whilst the signaling and the human capital are sort of really good you know i guess um, ways of contextualizing and understanding things they don't really i guess um fully acknowledge the extent into which people like might experience things or I guess the way in which people are, you know, privileged in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I just like that's like my first sort of caveat on that. But I think, you know, one thing that's really interesting is, for example, you know, engineering or medicine or nursing, like you said, there's these sorts of degrees that, um, you know, have, and you talked about it as well, Dave, and these sort of technical skills that are important, right? And there's mm -hmm. a fundamental element in which why we need those people to go and, and get the training, right? But, you know, the, the healthcare professional, um, you know, they're only as good as, um, I guess, their patients' active steps in bettering themselves, right? The, the engineer is only as good as the usefulness of the bridge, right, that they're building. You know, the, the teacher is only as good as the student that engages with them. And so I guess what I am interested in or what I like to highlight is that there's a whole bunch of skills and expertise that we bring to a role that sit outside the, the technical aspects or the sort mm. of outputs of our role, which are fundamental and important and often, I guess, overlooked. And sometimes it's, you know, it's not, um, you know, I don't always think that, right, you know, it, it's a simple case of training doctors to communicate better with patients, right? Sometimes it's important to have the 
hands to survive are in the room to help communicate right to the mm. person who's diagnosed with cancer what it is and what the experience is you know sometimes it's important to have um you know the mum in the room with the accountant the single mum in the room with the accountant showing someone this is actually when you earn 700 a week as a single mum this is how you budget right this is you know what you need this is what i did so I guess what I'm interested in or what I like to look at is these, these important roles that are often filled by people who are volunteers or people out of their own goodwill that are important roles in our society um, but aren't always acknowledged that way. Yeah. That's funny that you mentioned that. I have like another anecdote about that where I was um, experiencing like a lot of breathing problems mm. um, and I couldn't figure it out. And so I was like, you know, naturally, okay, I'm going to go to the doctor, figure mm. out why I feel like I'm like dying right now. And like my lungs are shutting down. Um, and the first doctor I went to was like, oh, you're suffering from like brutal panic attacks and you should go on SSRs immediately or you might, you know, start um, uh, diving into like a depression. Um, and I was like, oh, that's horrible. It's what a horrible thing to hear. <laughs> and so I went to another doctor and I was like, I'm going to get a second opinion. Um, the, the second doctor, I smoked about uh, maybe about a cigarette a day or maybe a cigarette every other day. Not, not a huge amount, you know, it's just like a small pleasure um, vice of mine. You did or the doctor? I, I did, not the doctor. I, this is just a random doctor. That Having I to, cigars like, with the doctor or something, you know. Was yeah, like, yeah, it was back, when, back in the 1960s. Um, yeah, so I went to this other doctor and I said, um, you know, I'm, I'm having this breathing problem and I feel like I can't breathe and you know it's horrible and you know, um, she's like do you smoke and I said yeah like every other day I'll like, have a cigarette or whatever like it's not a big deal and she's like oh it was could be the early signs of emphysema I'm suffering from um you know and, and it's like she drew this graph out that was like uh on the y-axis it said you know life and on the x-axis it was like time and you know she did like a normal life just goes downwards and as time goes over but every cigarette you have like decreases your life on this sort of like exponential downward trend or, or you know or just like a square root of, it goes down it's bad basically it's like uh you know really size <laughs> emphysema it's, um, it's pretty bad. you know damon's doing a really tight like for the listeners damon's doing really tight semicircle you know which is yeah the, yes <laughs> yeah it's your life force is getting drained away basically and i thought you know i was legitimately starting to get the first doctor's diagnosis after both of these because i was like fuck this is horrible you know like i'm starting to get emphysema um so i called my mom and i told her about this and she said oh well it's just asthma you know like it's you've got allergies it's asthma i've already told you this before so I went to a final third doctor and I presented the three diagnoses that I had and he sort of decided to go, you know, he's like, well, you know, your mom's probably right. Um, what she did end up being right about that I have just sort of like an asthma problem over a long period of time. And, I, and it's like to relate this back, one of the things that I found really fascinating since then is the number of doctors that I've visited that just don't really have any idea other than the sort of like immediate present. Uh, you know the information that I present to them that they'll then latch on to and just use that and be like oh, okay well that's what it is mm -hmm. as opposed to like you know uh, you know like my mom who has known me my entire life that immediately sort of knew exactly what it, what a sort of medical ailment that I suffer from and mm -hmm. I feel like there's so much wisdom locked in like you know when you're growing up that's just sort of like discounted as like you know you know oh mom's diagnosis no, you know, she doesn't have a medical degree. What does she know? Provided, you know, your mum's not a doctor. Um, <laughs> but, like, ends up being, like, really valid. And actually, in a lot of times, I feel like there's this 
you know, it, it's so discounted and thrown away because it's like, well, you know, without her medical degree, how could she ever properly diagnose you? Um, Absolutely. You know? and, and, and I guess it's that sort of, um, you know, it's those interesting elements, right, of like, yeah, you know, that the doctor, right, might be seen as um, being objective, right, in giving these very sort of, you know, well, this is the information you've provided me, so this is my response, right? But actually, the better thing to do is to, you know, have that, oh, okay, that's interesting. I'm not really sure what it could be, right? Um, And, you know, asking you more questions, you know, also doing a bit of just very simple profiling that as a young white male, you probably don't have a sophisticated understanding of your health, you know, like Mm. that's not a bad assumption to make. And so to ask different questions, also like, you know, just... For example, this doctor sort of, um, I mean, it didn't sound like it was super negative with the graph and the smoking. But, you know, there's this stigma that attached to smoking and a whole bunch of patients, and, you know, we see it with COVID as well, a whole bunch of people, like, they sort of become reluctant to say that, oh, I have actually had a sore throat for, you know, half a week because they're afraid of the way they might be vilified or stigmatised by the doctor. And and I, you know, my mum is a doctor. So I also have this, I guess, element of, um, you know, knowledge and experience around that. And, you know, Mm. you see, you know, one thing that she's sort of been sharing with me is sort of this, the way in which doctors sort of say, oh, well, you know, patients just, um, they can't be trusted, you know, like, like this idea that somehow patients will, will always be trying to lie to you. And that's not true, right? Um, Mm. You know, they, they don't put as many alcoholic drinks on their like, you know, document that they always have. Lots of people do that. But it doesn't mean that you can't ask questions to understand their behaviour with drinking, right? You know? Mm. Um, But if you took that very sort of methodical approach of like, oh, well, they've only selected, they drink, you know, less than once a week, so I'm not going to ask them any questions about alcohol, you know? I mean, we know that. We know that most Australians or most people in, um, you know, I guess Anglo-centric societies do drink a lot, so... Yeah. Is there, do you think experts have sort of like, we, we assume that experts are too objective because one of the things that interested me through that, that whole affair and the number of other times that I've encountered um, experts throughout my life, um, there's this assumption that there's this objective, you know, uh, spiel that I'm going to be getting. And no matter what doctor I go to, it's all the same, you know, no, no matter what engineer or um, whatever sort of scientist or whatever, I should be getting back the same answer because the, the holders of universal truth that I am um, accessing. Do you think there's this assumption that that's what it is and we don't, because I've always wondered whether, you know, why aren't we assuming that they're just people and maybe that, you know, that doctor that I'd seen originally had just seen someone who had got smoking mm. from, you know, emphysema from smoking, sorry. Mm. Or, or just had a patient that had died after, you know, having emphysema and all of these relations with, you know, Mm. lung cancer, right? I think, um, and this comes back really nicely to what I was talking about, about that coupling or that sort of personification of us as doctors, right? Not someone who Mm. is, you know, trained as a doctor or, you know, not someone that is a nurse, you know, and this sort of idea that I think um, a lot of people when they're in, they assume this role that, you know, they're sort of this sort of expert and they're trusted to do this and they really personify that role and there's sort of this idea that to be moral or ethical or competent that you have to be a certain way Um, and that's sort of Mm -hmm. even the article that we, um, that's drawn on in, that you've drawn on Hayden, Star. Um, you know, that's something they talk about and they talk about some of um, Mikhail Colt's work, which is about that, 
this concept that we behave a certain way because it's it's coupled with our identity um, as a good person or as a sort of good social actor, you know, and you'll see, for example, you know, he uses examples of, um, you know, an employer will be sort of authoritarian in the way they give rules because that's, they're a good manager then. Like that's part of their role, right? If, if their staff aren't doing work, then they're incompetent. Like it's a reflection on them and it's sort of this personification of, yeah, I guess what we're meant to be doing. And I guess really acknowledging that a lot of us don't actually, I'm, I don't want to say we don't have control over things because that's like almost like you're relegating out any responsibility. But this idea that we feel the need to act so much. Mm. So, and, and that's sort of veiled in objectivity when it, it's actually not, right? And, and we can't, we have to acknowledge the inherent bias or the inherent subjectivity that we bring to everything. Um, you know, even, for example, researchers, you know, they will always bring, no matter how um, sort of unbiased or objective your data is that you have, it, you will always bring an element of subjectivity. And so it's important that we firstly acknowledge that and then secondly take steps to limit that. Um, but you can't say that nothing is, you know, every, something is purely objective. There seems a problem then with um, promotion as well, right? Because I mean, objective, neutral language. One of the the articles that you shared with us had a big talk about journalism, which is sort of like an endlessly fascinating field um, for me personally, just as a commentator and, you know, (laughs) just generally looking at it. Uh, And they talked about, um, I guess, like journalists as having an original code of ethics um, or or something that they would sign up to, whereas, uh, and and be seen as experts. I've actually got a paragraph of it sitting in front of me. Um, There is the elite gatekeeping involved in the creation of journalists. And now that's kind of like eroded away, I guess. Um, But I, I, I was never aware that it was a thing, but I guess it was at some point. And people are starting to shift away from that to more sensationalized stuff because it's you know more grabbing and everything that i i guess with the question i have is to promote your own research and to put it forward it feels like you kind of have to be sensationalized uh you know sensational and everything and and to be sort of like attention grabbing um but also if you're to remain neutral then that would be very difficult to do you know yeah and and i think you know there was i'm trying to look i was trying to look at that um article you know like just look through that article because there was a quote in there that I thought was really interesting around the return of gatekeepers so I must admit I was sort of trying to listen to you and weave that into it but I think um and now I've completely lost my point but um yeah I guess the the you know one thing that um is really interesting about that is just this idea that um somehow there's a there's a there's one way of doing something, or there, there's some sort of efficient, you know, sort of best way, right? This idea around yeah. best practice and not contextual practice and not practice which is suitable for the settings that we find in front of us. Um, mm. You often see these sorts of ethical dilemmas put forward, or these dilemmas put forward about what's right and what's wrong, right? And you know, there's sort of, um, I find that there's this codification and I'm not sure if it's this article or another one, but this codification of ethics, um, which just becomes a device in which institutions can, can you know, delineate power and limit risk, right? Which is actually, yeah. I guess, comes back to the public interest element that we were talking about before um, in that, you know, you have to just be able to um, really, I guess, have that 
the principle-based approach and really look at what is the purpose of what I'm doing rather than what is the what is ethically right based on this construct of ethics around the sort of principles. And we have this all the time in research because we have an ethical way of conducting research, which is often so far removed from the practicalities of research, particularly when you're working with diverse groups who will, you know, for example, they'll, you'll be doing some research um, and I'll use an example of it, you know, um, not my, this isn't my own experience, but, you know, the example of someone who's living in a town where there's coal seam gas, right? Um, being extracted or, you know, I don't know what they do with coal seam gas, but, you know, there's a mining <laughs> yeah. company and there's the community, right? The sort of, eth- our ethical guidelines will mean that we can't tell the mining company, you know, say we're doing research with them, who the participants are and what they share, right? Because there's this idea, this construct that's unethical because the mining company will cut off their power or, you know, do all these standover tactics. Um, and the experience of my, the experiences that I've had before when there's been this sort of David and Goliath situation is the participant says, well, no, like, fuck off. I, I want them to know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm yeah, telling you, you yeah. can put my name down next to it. I want them to come and talk to me about it. You know, like they're frustrated. Yeah. They want to be empowered. And, and I guess we sort of construct this idea that that by keeping it anonymous, we're somehow got this greater level of objectivity and safety when actually we're just limiting voices and um, sort of, um, I guess, de- personalizing the individual right that that is sharing it and personifying them as a community member rather than ryan menner you know and so yeah oh can you operate outside of the institute like you know i i've by the sounds of it like institutions are always very careful and they manage the risk a lot Mm -hmm. now um you know which i've i've heard horrors from the uh dealing with the app you know, dealing with ethics and trying to get around and just conduct research. Um, is there scope to move outside of it? Because it sounds like it's very difficult to present yourself um, in, in the way that you'd want to without sort of adhering to these guidelines. But do you think like a like a different university style model or like style of researcher could, t- could emerge? Look, I think that there's there are competing interests, right? But firstly, you know, you have the ethical process, which is onerous in and of itself. So to then add a layer of it, which makes it sort of, I guess, um, more onerous is not, you know, enticing, right, for anyone. Um, mm-hmm. And in instances where I've, you know, sort of advocated it from a research team, you know, I've always then once, I've always drawn it on it as, well, this is really important for the participant, right? And it's important that the participant, who is ultimately our first duty, our fiduciary duty is to the participant of the study, the person that's sharing their information, you know, if not for them, we wouldn't have anything to research, right? Um, this sharing of information is their information. We need to make sure that we use it in a way that fulfills, you know, not their wishes in this sort of idea that it's somehow, um, you know, we're just doing their bidding, but that we are respectful of them. And I think that if that's how I've always tried to ground it and draw on it. And luckily in Australia, the ethical framework is such that it's guidelines. And so you only have to, you know, the university likes to follow the guidelines but they're not legally obliged to follow the guidelines. Um, But the guidelines themselves are, you know, you can construct a narrative around that. Um, And luckily in Australia, our one is focused on the participant. 
Um, so there's this, I, you know, this importance of you can place the participant in the middle of it all and give them all the decision-making power. But of course, um, you know, the, your experiences is that it's a more onerous process. You know, people in the research team might not like to do that because it restricts their ability to conduct research, right, in the way they'd like to do it, which is that element of subjectivity that they bring to it. Mm. it it's construed by funders as perhaps being um, sort of um, inefficient or sort of um, carefree with the money because if you've got participants that you've spent all this time getting data from and then they decide that, oh, no, you can't use it anymore, um, then, you know, is this a waste of money, right? Um, you know, I would argue no, but there's those elements to it. So there's a lot of, I guess, levers that do mean that research is conducted in certain ways um, and the ethical guidelines are just one of them. But I think too often they're deferred to as sort of the default and like just sort of like, oh, we can't do that, that would breach ethics. Um, mm-hmm. And if there's nothing unethical about what you're doing, there's no reason that it should breach any guidelines, right? You should be able to construct that narrative mm-hmm. from it. Um, mm. just about, about being empowered to do so. Um, so I had extracted this quote from the article you're referring to a little bit earlier, which I think um, sort of summarizes what you're talking about pretty well. So I might read it out. Um, mm. And this is sort of, I think, the more extreme take on it. But it says, not only do professionals erode the moral basis of society by substituting their professional codes for moral principles, and not only do professionals obscure the dialogic impulses out of which knowledge flows, professions are anti-intellectual insofar as they inculcate the a tendency to not examine the wider social, political, and cultural wellsprings of professional knowledge. And I think that sort of sums it up nicely, I think, mm. or at least one way to think about it. Mm. I would like to thank you guys for doing the heavy lifting for the last 20 minutes of that. It was <laughs> nice to actually be the listener instead of um, the podcaster. I actually think that's such a terrible word, a podcaster. But anyway, you don't need to personify yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a guy who makes podcasts. Yes. Um, Well, it's five o'clock, so you need to head off, Ryan. Is there anything that you want to share or um, maybe like plug? I don't know if you want to, but plug your social media or anything if you're on Twitter or anything like that. No, there's nothing I need to plug really. I guess just yeah, cool. That that um. I mean, the only thing I'd really say is that it's important that we um, remain, I guess, critical participants of society and that we, mm-hmm. we push back on elements and that never feel that, um, you know, things, situations are always dynamic, nothing is static, and that, you know, you're not somehow um, flippant or inconsistent because you've changed your view or your perspective on something, that things always emerge and, and building on one another. So I think that, um, you know, a word of caution towards being too definitive in what you do, but also don't don't feel like just because you have had a previous view that you somehow um, can't change your view and can't have a different perspective. There's um, an outstanding Kanye West quote in an interview with Zane Lowe, which um, I think is a pretty uh, nice, like uh, everyday man's personification of that point, mm. uh, where I can't remember the exact issue that they were talking about, what it was, but Zane Lowe said, like, you know, so Kanye, when you did X, um, Y called you a hypocrite. And he's just like, I'm not a hypocrite. I changed my mind, (laughs) 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 which I think is 
fucking awesome. I I quote that often. Like that's good. I think yeah. yeah. Um yeah, Damon, do you have uh one more thing you wanna chuck in before we wrap up? No, that's it really. Um thanks for coming on, Ryan. Pleasure. It was really nice to yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it. it yeah, really awesome. Oh well, yeah. I didn't have to go. Thanks a lot for sharing your time with us, man. Um, Please, like, uh, if you ever feel inclined, I know sometimes I get excited when I find particular articles and I kind of just want to share them with someone, even if I know no one else is going to care. Maybe if you ever have those itches, send them our way because I would like to read more stuff um, or yeah, any research you stumble across, yeah, share it and um, we can maybe drop it, work it into another episode or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, to wrap up, Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, follow us on Instagram at Modern Guilt Pod. You can hit us up on email, modernguiltpod at gmail.com, I believe. That's our email, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Um, I was going right. to plug the subreddit, but I was like, no, it's just dead. Go yeah. on there. I'm sure. <laughs> one day dude it'll one day it'll spring to life and it'll take everybody by surprise mark my words including yourself because you might have changed your view by then yeah exactly (laughs) um all right let's do it Thank you.